millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. I'm Jonathan Tanner and this week I'll be talking to Mivan Babakar. Mivan is the head of automated fact-checking at the fact-checking charity Full Fact. She also founded Citizen Beta and the volunteering website Who's In, which you'll hear more about in a moment. How could real-time fact-checking transform political debates? Would journalists be more able to hold politicians to account if they had access to a real-time fact database? And is it time that Government vs. the Robots listeners became fact-checkers themselves? First off, Mivan, can you introduce yourself to everybody? Hi, my name is Mivan Babaka and I'm Head of Automated Fact-Checking at Full Fact. And what's Full Fact? Full Fact is the UK's independent fact-checking charity. We've mm. been around for quite a while actually, since 2010. <laughs> and what do you do day to day? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, mostly we're really tired because there's been a lot of elections and referendums recently. But in the short term, Full Fact, Full Fact gives people the information they need to be able to make up their own minds on important issues. It's very easy to be overwhelmed with the number of people claiming things, um, politicians, the media. Um, and it's our job to give you the information and the research that you would do if you had the time to check it. Before we get into talking more about Full Fact and Facts, yeah. what did you do before you joined Full Fact? So, way back at university, I was a bioengineer. And then I joined an organization that got young people registered to vote. Then I joined Cancer Research in the digital team for a while. Uh, and then I joined Full Fact in 2014. Uh, and Full Fact's not your only gig, right? No, I do a lot of stuff on the side. Um, I'm a busy person. Um, so I also run a civic tech meetup in London called Citizen Beta. Um, and that's about 500 people who gather uh, once a month to talk about technology and how it's affecting our lives and politics and government and who's in and who's in yes uh, i forget about the other stuff um so i also am starting a platform for volunteering basically for one-off volunteering at the moment volunteering is very hard to get into um you have to sign up with a charity and it's often something you have to do over a period of um months to build a relationship and what we're trying to do is gather all the one-off volunteering events that happen in london as a start um, to lower the barrier to entry to volunteering. And where can people find out more about that? Who's in .io. Cool. Yeah. Uh, where did the idea come from for that? Uh, full fact. Uh, so I was, for the 2015 general election, running our volunteering and also our crowdfunding at the same time. 
Um, and the crowdfunding was relatively simple in that the systems were there. It was like, make a good case and people donate. Whereas the volunteering was really difficult. I was organizing about 120 people um, and the systems weren't there. The tools weren't there. It was all kind of slapdash. Um, it was about Google Forms and emails and it was really hard to keep track of everyone. Um, and it was hard to get people on board. Um, so I kind of wondered a few weeks after the election, why can't we marry the crowdfunding mechanics for volunteering? Um, it was pretty much a similar kind of thing. I needed 100 or so volunteers, but it was a lot harder to get them than it was the crowdfunders. If you cast your mind back to when you joined Full Fact, yep. uh, what made you want to do it? I've always been really interested in powerlessness um, and how intrinsically there are some people who feel more confident in being a part of the democratic process than others. And I've always wondered whether the unbalance in access to information is a part of that. I think it's also partly about how assertive you are as an individual, like how much you feel you know, whether you're financially stable actually has been proven to be a part of whether you want to get involved or not. If you're just trying to meet rent, you're not going to be worrying about protesting or like signing a petition. You have other things to be worrying about. So I've always been interested in the the imbalances that exist and for me full fact was a really great not very party political way of getting involved in something democratic and that's the things that I've always done in my career so far have always been about democracy not necessarily party politics. So it seems fairly obvious particularly after the last couple of years to say that facts are political um, but can you give me your version of facts are political, which is to say, you know, we're here to talk about how, in the bigger scheme of things, how technology will influence politics in the future. And technology mm -hmm. is obviously influencing how people interpret and distribute facts. But why is it, you know, when I say facts are political, why do you nod in agreement? Well, I was actually going to say, why do you think facts are political? <laughs> uh, I'm really interested in your opinion on that, actually. Because they've all, I think they've always been a part of political discourse. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very hard to build an argument without using any evidence. Yeah. Um, and I think my sense is also that facts become political the minute they leave the page. Whether they are inanimate in and of themselves, the way they are used is inherently political the minute you pick up a number. Because say that number's 40%, mm. you know, in some people's minds that's nearly half, depending on the argument they want to make. Um, and in another one, it's 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 just less than half. Yeah. Um, and it's just that those little twists in inevitably become part of political discourse. So I guess that's my answer as to why. But do you agree? So um, I agree that there are some statistics that or facts. As I guess we have to separate those two things out. Um, statistics specifically can be picked um, and cherry picked um, in certain ways to build certain narratives. So if I wanted to tell you that the NHS was in crisis, I could definitely paint a very vivid story using the number of junior doctors or any crisis num um, figures and only pick the ones that represent my view. Um, but I might be missing out this whole other part of the story as a result. And what Full Fact's job is, is to put back in the shades of grey when people are making it out to be black and white. Um, and so facts can be political, absolutely, when you cherry pick them and you paint one particular story. But I also think that when you have the full context and the full picture, that's really when political debate can begin. Um, because then everybody is looking at the full spectrum of information 
and then having a debate off the back of that. And just qu- just quickly, how would you define the difference between facts and stats? Um, I think stats are types of facts, um, but I think we have several philosophers in our office that would argue that till kingdom come. Um, so I don't really think it's that big a distinction. They're just bits of information and they can be used in various ways. And do you think that it is possible to ever to have the whole picture because it it sort of feels to me sometimes like in the world of political debate Mm. you can just drop a fact on top of a fact Mm. or you can drop a sentiment on top of a fact and you know these arguments I've I've worked in and around politics for kind of 15 years these arguments are inevitably circular and there's always something that a good debater Mm. um, and a lot of politicians are good debaters can add to a conversation so do you think it is ever possible to kind of approach a subject from the point of perfect information yeah i don't really think it's about perfect information i actually think it's about not being misled like purposefully misled that's what i find the most frustrating um an example is um poverty statistics jeremy corbyn and theresa may will get up at PMQs, Prime Minister's Questions, um, and they will. Say, one of them will say poverty is going down and the other one will say poverty is, is actually rising. And they'll just go back and forth for a while saying that and nothing else. And the fact of the matter is that there are two measures of poverty in the country, relative poverty and absolute poverty. One is going up, one is going down. So they're both right. But the picture that it leaves everybody with is that why don't they know what's happening with poverty statistics? Like, how could it be possible that there are two measures or how could it be that they both think the, the opposite things and then people lose faith in that system altogether or trust in that system altogether and i think that's what i dislike most is when people are being uh, information is cherry-picked and people are being misled as a result what's the um which one's going up and which one's going down relative and absolute poverty i can't remember because um, i work at a fact-checking organization i won't pretend i know you have to move on yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay i uh I, I wonder which one it is maybe i should maybe we should check the fact because uh <laughs> i am i'm very obviously poverty is a big thing in international development which we were saying just before we start recording the episode is yeah. where my day job is and i think in a way it's very hard it would be hard to ever get rid of relative poverty because it's a kind of human concept and in a lot of ways it's a good thing that it exists because it says that people in the world recognize that others have a lot less and recognize that that's something that often that they want to do something about so um but i suspect in britain at the moment absolute poverty may be increasing and relative poverty may be decreasing as general standards of living fall but, but it kind of raises an interesting question about what we measure and why we measure it and what actually that is informing in our politics i think a lot of people overlook the fact that we have made inherently political choices in the things that we choose to measure we actually know more about our golf courses than we do crime (laughs) Um, and that's kind of crazy to be in a world like that Um, and I think that these choices are being made and they're being made at a level where they're not being scrutinized either so I think that that if anything it should be something that is more debated. What sort of things do we know about our golf courses? We know like the numbers of them and like how many people frequent them how often like how many just a lot more information um, than really is necessary. (laughs) People that play golf i think tend to be quite into their statistics yeah. so maybe that explains <laughs> that um i touched on this we touched on this a moment ago but my question i've got written here is are facts really facts yeah um in that the the truth is something that people can perceive differently um people can have their own versions of the truth even yes. based on the same information mm. um so i mean i guess i wonder how you might describe a fact if you were to go about trying to describe a fact So I I totally agree with you that there are different versions 
of the truth um and people have their own personal truths and that's that's very true i think there are abstractions that we try to make um and maybe a good example is people's wages um just because the average wage has fallen by let's say five thousand i don't know if actually know if that's true but let's say if it's fallen by five thousand nobody check that fact nobody check it please um but if it has theoretically then who is the average person there is really no such thing as the average person it might mean that somebody uh living in the I don't know, West End has actually got a pay rise of 20,000 and somebody else has lost their job entirely. It's not that 5,000 has been knocked off across the board. Um, so I think sometimes our numbers are inadequate at telling us the full spectrum of stories that exist and we need to get much more better nuanced information that can paint those stories for us in a more vivid way that lets us make better policies in the long run and better choices in the long run. But I, for me, the the facts, the statistics are abstractions that try to tell us that. And sometimes they do their job well, and sometimes they do their job badly. So I'm going to ask you in a moment how we can do a better job with facts. Um, but first off, just to kind of prove your point, one of my favourite facts um, is that the word factoid mm. actually means something which is not a fact. <laughs> but most people would use it to describe a fact. But Small the facts, oid yeah. means it's a kind of deviation from a fact. Um, which perhaps explains kind of the, the way that people consume information and um, perceived facts become truths even when they're not. So factoid, next time someone gives you a factoid, you can uh, perhaps irritatingly tell them that it is false <laughs> if but, it's a factoid. But so I think this is a really important thing that you've hit on, though, is because I don't want fact-checking to be, oh, hey, you were wrong about that thing and therefore you're a terrible person. I think it's not about fact-checking people's individual conversations between them and their friends. I think pub conversations should be full of crap and that should continue forevermore. But I think when there are people in positions of power or our officials or uh, leaders of states, whatever, telling us specific things and no one is holding them accountable, I think that's the place where fact-checking can do a lot of good and journalism does a lot of good and actually there has to be people asking. Um, and we know for a fact, we, we call it the they know we check effect in the office. Um, just the act of picking up the phone, calling them and saying, hey, where did you get that number from? makes them understand that there will be someone next time who will do that again and then they're a bit more cautious about using that we've got stories like that from all over the political spectrum people telling us that actually just asking has made a big difference anybody who's nodding their head in agreement while they're listening might want to check out an episode uh, from the data for development festival of government versus robots where we spoke to the head of the office of national statistics about the importance of stats in public policy making um, but Mivan, i want to ask you how do you even go about checking a fact what is the basic process uh, by which you guys at full fact will kind of look at something somebody said and, and check it for accuracy a good question um so we first monitor a lot of the day's media things that have come up um in tv shows or newspapers um at the moment i think we're on a front pages kick <laughs> um so we're going through those and when there is a claim that is made that um has national value um actually affects people's lives and is important enough to check we will go about checking it um so the first thing that we do when we check something is call the person who made the claim uh, and we will ask them where did you get your numbers from and that's like non-negotiable for us and um, we do that every single time um, because we don't want to assume and we want to understand 
how it went wrong or if it went wrong at all it might be totally correct um, that's another part of fact checking we sometimes tell people that's actually true and that's an important part of it too after we find out where they got their information we will go to that data source um, and we will do the analysis ourselves and we will see if that claim stacks up basically if it does stack up we will write the fact check um, if it doesn't stack up and there's more nuance that hasn't been left out what we'll do is we'll call the experts in the country the people who actually created that data set and we will do the analysis that was required to get to the right number or to get to the right story or if there are multiple versions of the truth like you were getting at earlier our job is to actually say here are the multiple versions of the truth and here is how they're different and which one speaks most to you it's your choice you make up your own mind on this and then there are some instances where actually we don't have data to to prove the thing that they were saying and in that case what we'll do is say that there isn't enough statistics here there are there aren't there isn't enough data and we'll actually call up the people who are the data providers like the office of national statistics or uh, sometimes in the nhs and we'll ask them why isn't this data available um, and usually that leads to a succession of conversations where they go oh we thought that was available um, we'll do something about that um, and actually that's a really big part of our job as well is actually figuring out where the holes and gaps are in the ecosystem even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's been your favorite fact check for, for better or for worse in the time that you've been at Full Fact? Oh, the problem is I haven't been in the fact checking or editorial team for a while now because my job is doing the tech part of it. But one of my favorite ones, now that I think back... <laughs> is that I think it was a Liberal Democrat candidate said that crime had uh, fallen, I think it was by about 10% um, as a result of their policies, um, when actually it had fallen by something like 25 um, So they had like wildly underestimated their own efficacy of their policy, which um, is just so 
not the general trend of a fact check usually it's often the other way around it's exaggerated in the opposite way i don't know if that <laughs> reflects well on the candidate or not i, can't I don't decide. know <laughs> um you are you mentioned that your job at the moment is to do the tech side of things and you are head of ai fact checking mm -hmm. so can you tell us a little bit about how ai is being used in full facts to check facts yeah so um i call it automated fact checking um because the machine learning and ai elements are still kind of very much researchy um, but there's a lot of like technology elements to it. Um, so just kind of media monitoring elements to it. So because I've seen the fact-checking team grow and do their work, within that, there are four parts of fact-checking really. It's the monitoring, it's the spotting of something to check, it's the checking and then the publishing. And within each of those bits, there are things or tools that we can build that can scale those efforts or speed up those efforts. So my job is to find those parts um, and actually build a tool that helps them do more faster and so what are you doing at the moment so one of the things that we started building first was a tool called live um, which helps us do live fact checking uh, usually we would take our entire team into a newsroom um, and they would within minutes live fact check something that a candidate had just said on the stage um, usually during a referendum or election and that required all of our fact-checkers to remember what the latest piece they had written on was, where they got that data. Um, and actually, that was quite a grueling process because it was a lot of remembering. It was a lot of double-checking. Um, but the only reason they could do that was because of their experience and expertise that they had gained in the past few years. So live, our live fact-checking tool, instead of having everybody there, gets the subtitles in real time or the speech in real time. And then it takes every single sentence and matches it against our database of fact checks. And so in real time, it says, here is the best available fact check that goes against this sentence or this claim that was just made. So all of a sudden, we don't need our most experienced fact checkers in the room anymore. It could be anyone who is willing to get in there and do some live fact checking. And then the second more recent mode is actually using Office for National Statistics data. So we're really privileged in the UK to have really great data. And our Office for National Statistics is actually doing really, really great work. Um, they're building a machine-readable API um, that actually allows us in real time to take a sentence, parse it out, so be like, here's the noun, verb, etc., and then in real time go to the GDP figures or inflation figures or unemployment figures and generate a graph for the person right then and there. So if you imagine that you're in a press conference and you're a journalist, you could potentially have this app open and in real time it will do speech to text. So you get the sentences as they're being said and in real time it will go to the ONS, generate a graph right then and there. So if they're saying something that you know isn't true, you can push back in real time instead of going to your desk. All of which sounds absolutely fabulous from a kind of quality of democracy mm -hmm. point of view. Um, how many people know that these tools are out there? I know, I know they're in their infancy, but kind of, you know, it's, it's one thing being able to do this. It's yeah. another thing being able to do it and use it to drive accountability. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, we've only really been building, we've had the money to have a tech team for like nine months. Um, so it's still very much in its infancy. I actually just released them properly semi um, at the global fact-checking conference which happened last week um, so that's the first time that we're inviting other fact-checkers around the world to use them so at the moment it's just full fact that is, is using it well, who do you hope might use it in the future we're already working with africa check in south africa and Chequiado in argentina um, i was talking to 
Boom, which is a fact-checking outfit in India, and one in the Philippines as well called Rappler. Um, so there are a lot of them that have like like popped up in the past few years, and they all suffer the same pain points as we do. Um, so and life fact-checking is a really big part of that for a lot of people. So I'm hoping that they will all become the first users of the live fact-checking tool. And how would you, in an ideal world, in, I don't know, two to three years' time, like to see this tool being used? I'd like to see it being used by a lot of fact-checkers to do live fact-checking. I'd also like to see be, see it being used um, by journalists who are in that press conference scenario in real time pushing back against um, officials. Yeah, And also, maybe, as a controversial opinion, um, by politicians who are expected to know everything at once. Like, maybe we should equip them with the statistics in real time so that they could do a better job. That's... A thought. I don't necessarily know if we have an opinion on that, but I do think politicians have a really hard job and maybe we should equip them with better information. So, I mean, I agree with you, um, especially having kind of watched politicians work over the last decade. It's very hard to be on top of every single fact. In fact, I think it's impossible to be on top of every single fact. And so often things go unchallenged that probably deserve to be challenged. Yeah. But if you had, let's, let's say that this vision comes true and actually you have a... a pretty effective fact checker that's kind of on tap for anybody involved in a serious political conversation ban it from the pub and uh you could end up in a bit of a kind of ding dong of well my fact says this and your fact says that and my fact says this and actually we know that a lot of what drives people's political decision making or people's political affiliations is around sentiment and emotion and instinct mm. so how important uh, to overall political outcomes do you think more accurate checking of facts could be to overall political outcomes um, do you think do you know do you think do you think if we all had access to perfect stats we'd get different results in elections no, no i don't think so i do think that um yeah obviously emotions play a really big part in how we choose to vote and personalities play a big part in how we choose to vote but i think when it comes to issues that you really care about and you make the time to understand about, which isn't necessarily everything. Um, you do want to know what is going on. A lot of junior doctors right now care a lot about what is happening with the NHS and its funding, but a lot of people have f strong feelings about the NHS. And I think that it's important that when those feelings become something else and you want to have access to good information, you should have easy access to it. Because at the moment, it's really obscure. It's really hard to find those figures. And I guess the argument that we're making is that it shouldn't be hard. That if you want figures, you should have access to figures. If you want to understand how many people are in poverty right now, you should be able to have that at your fingertips. And I think it's worth um, pausing on the power of some of the the automated fact-checking that you were talking about. So um, I was reading a Washington Post article in which you were quoted about, I think it was from the conference mm -hmm. last week, where you spoke in the speech to so the, the line, unemployment is going down, and the fact-checker kind of pulled up a graph straight away to check that. Yeah. Which is amazingly transformative if you think about how it could be used in election debates or in hustings and you know the even the live leadership debates in the British uh, prime ministerial contest yeah in terms of getting there have you been working with any other tech companies or nope um we've been doing this entirely ourselves and actually building tech as a charity it's I wouldn't recommend it it's very hard <laughs> it's um 
this could have very easily been done as a startup and it could have had a whole different trajectory but we believe that actually this is technology that should be built from the charity and as a non-profit and there is value in doing it that way too even though it is harder and full fact does work with other with some of the big tech firms if you kind of put all the social media firms facebook i think being one example so we have had funding through the google digital news initiative um which was an open process and we applied for some money for and actually google prototype funding was the first money that we got to build these tools um and then we've also got money from amidia and open society foundations as well to build those tools some more um during the election uh, that just passed facebook gave us 50,000 ad credits specifically to push out good information on the facebook platform um but that's pretty much it in terms of money do you think companies like google and facebook are doing a good job of kind of getting their heads around how to try and address the abuse of facts in public discourse i think it's very hard to know what a good job is right now because nobody really understands the scale of the different issues at play and there are a lot of different issues let's be honest like there's all the way from someone is wrong on the internet to election interference to uh, abuse of power to radicalization right and this is a huge spectrum of stuff to be working across um i know they care very deeply about facebook at least about things like hate speech which they've spoken very openly about um and google has spoken about advertising and how it's being more rigorous with its advertising and facebook has done the same but obviously there are some choices that shouldn't be made in the terms and conditions of tech platforms like political advertising for example um that should be decided through an open democratic process by the people who are in power um and i think it's important that we don't by default let those choices be made by by google and facebook and we take an active part in them you give me a good opportunity to plug uh, the government versus the robots episode on political advertising it's a good one um which talks about all sorts of issues in the way that uh, politicians use adverts not least the fact that there is no existing regulation around political advertising at all you can pretty much say what you want put what you want it doesn't matter if it's true or not um so do go and have a listen to that if you're interested in political advertising um is there anything that Facebook or Google could do easily, in your view, that they should do and they're not? Um, I could talk about it in the context of the second tool that we're building, um, which is called Trends. And what that does, it spots every single time a claim that we've already checked is repeated. And at the moment, it is looking at the newspapers in the UK. It's looking at BBC uh, on TV um, and it's looking at everything said in Parliament and specific pages on Facebook. So I can show you a pretty cool graph actually of the 350 million a week goes to the EU and all the times that it was repeated in the UK. It's a good graph because you can see um, during the election it was quite big and then it kind of went away and then when Boris Johnson came out again a year later and spoke about it there was a huge spike again and we know that these things are wrong and we've fact-checked them but the problem is we haven't been able to spot every single time it's repeated. And being able to spot that lets us make smarter choices about the corrections that we ask for. It means that we can go to the regulators or the UK standards, UK Statistics Authority, the UKSA, and ask them to do their job of actually taking statistics out of circulation or speaking publicly about the inaccuracies. And that kind of insight is incredibly powerful for fact checkers and for those bodies and at the moment, that data is very hard to get a hold of because it exists in the Facebook ecosystem or 
various parts that Google owns. Um, so I think they've Facebook has recently released a research project in America with a lot of universities. I think they could definitely do the same in the UK. That would be fantastic. Actually having access to the scale of the problem on the platform will be great for fact checkers, for um, researchers, but also for policymakers. I'd love to watch an episode of... Uh, well, I wouldn't love to watch many episodes of Question Time, to be honest with you, but <laughs> I'd love to watch an episode of Question Time with a kind of uh, fact-checking worm yeah. <laughs> squirming along beneath it, I think. And, and actually, I, I guess, have you had any conversations with media producers, broadcast producers, about incorporating kind of live fact-checking? Yeah, we've actually done it a few times. Um, in fact, I think we might have done it once. We, we were talking to the BBC QT guys once to, about doing that. Um, but we've definitely done it on... Um, during the elections on actual stages um so will our director will be on the side and sometimes he'll stop the conversation and do it i think he's done it on victoria derbyshire before as well um so there are more and more people playing with that format we haven't quite got it right yet but i think it's slowly getting there and i'm hoping that the tools will be the thing that make it easier because if i can give a live fact-checking tool in the hands of every single producer um, then they have the tools right then and there to be able to do the fact-checking themselves. We don't need to clone our team. Um, we can just give it to them and they have access to that institutional knowledge. You can put them in a position where it's like a, a more exciting, politically relevant dictionary corner. Yeah, a really boring one, though. <laughs> well, I'm a fan of dictionary corner. I, I would be a fan of fact we, fact I don't corner. know what you'd call it, fact corner. The full factory. Somebody could come up with a better name for it than that. We'll think about it. Um, I'm going to do something a bit different this week, right. uh, I, just because I want to encourage people who are listening to do their own fact checking mm-hmm. um, and get in touch and solve for me the mystery of whether three particular stories uh, that I have been told are true or false. And you're going to be my guinea pig as to whether they are okay. true or false. So, uh, fact number one of the three potential true or false facts yeah does the word wharf stand for warehousing adjacent to riverfront no okay question number two (laughs) is the daddy long legs the most venomous insect in all of the world I'm also going to go no, but now I'm worried because they all sound like they might be like controversially yeses through some sort of weird caveat. Someone's going to have to check the facts. <laughs> Hopefully someone is going to check the facts. Uh, question number three. Is it true that Weatherspoons is called Weatherspoons because it is the name of the founder's maths teacher who told him that he would amount to nothing? I'm going to go Yes. That's the one that I think is most likely to be true as well. I think I've read the Weatherspoons magazine and I could believe that that would be a tidbit in there. Extra Weatherspoons fact. Every <laughs> single Weatherspoons has a different carpet. Oh, really? <laughs> which I believe is a fact. But again, if anyone wants to check that fact, they can. Meevan, um, it's been really, really great talking to you. And I think the implications of some of the technology that you're working on could be really quite profound um, at a time when the conversations that we're having really need somebody to kind of anchor us in reality from time to time um so all power to your elbow with that the last question that i want to ask you is around kind of reasons for optimism that you see in the kind of fact checking community so you're kind of working with uh, groups of people who are looking to try and bring more accountability around the truth mm-hmm. perhaps um in, in society and particularly in political life so Why does the growth in the fact-checking movement make you feel optimistic? Because for a long time, we haven't been able to push back against people in power 
um, at the speed that we have needed to to stop bad information spreading. And as crazy and as scared as we are about technology that has cut down the time it takes or has increased the way that things can go viral, that is also an opportunity for us to use those mechanics in the same way to stop things spreading or to give people good information. Um, So I think we have to think proactively about building trust. I think we have to think about data, not only gathering it, but its limits and what it can and can't tell us. And I think fact checkers are at the forefront at the moment or at the front lines of a lot of those conversations. And the fact that there are more of them means that we can start gathering real evidence about the scale of the problems that we're working with. And are there places that people that want to do some fact checking should be going to try and help out with the fact checking cause? So there are different fact checkers in each country. Uh, in the UK, there's Full Fact. Um, in America, there's PolitiFact and FullFact.org. Um, and Washington Post has Glenn Kessler. Um, but there is an international fact checking community as well. Um, so that is run by a guy called Alexios Manzales. And there's a whole list of the international fact checking outfits around the world that you want, might want to get involved with on that site. Great. Even thanks very much. Thank you. So that's all for this week. We'll be back in a fortnight with an old friend, Jamie Bartlett, who'll be talking about his new book, The People vs. Tech. If you've checked our facts and want to feedback, you can get us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore robots. My thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review and you can subscribe on Acast or iTunes. 